0: Section 9 of The Ring and the Book An Interpretation by Francis Bickford Hornbrook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Dominus Hyacinthus de Arcangelis. Heretofore, we have listened to the voices of those who have spoken out of their prejudices, their love or hate, their hope or fear. They have all been animated by personal interest or feeling, but, in the speeches of the lawyers, only a professional interest in the story appears. Hyacinthus de Archangelus, who has been appointed to defend Guido and his four companions, intends to base his defence on certain abstract principles of law and honour. He knows that he cannot evade the charge of murder, or, as he prefers to phrase it, of the killing. Unfortunately, Guido had been unable to endure the torture and had made confession of his deed. Otherwise, he could have proved the murder a mere myth. He could have urged that Guido, at the time of its commission, was visiting his proper church, the duty of us all at Christmas time, when Caponsacchi, the seducer, stung to madness by his relegation, cast about him and contrived a remedy in murder since opprobrium broke afresh by birth of the babe on him the imputed sire he it was quietly sought to smother up his shame and theirs together killed the three and fled go seek him where you please to search just at the time when guido touched by grace devotions ended hastened to the spot meaning to pardon his convicted wife, neither do I condemn thee. Go in peace. And thus arrived, i the nick of time, to catch the charge of the killing, though great-heartedly he came but to forgive and bring to life. Doubt ye the force of Christmas on the soul? Is thine eye evil, because mine is good? But now that Count Guido, not being able to bear pain, has confessed his deed, This plea would not answer, and he must find other means to extenuate, or perhaps justify it. He contends, therefore, that he finds excuse on the ground that Guido's honour had been threatened, and that, in defence of that alone, he had killed Pompilia and those with her. Therefore, we shall demonstrate, first of all, that honour is a gift of God to man precious beyond compare. Which natural sense of human rectitude and purity, Which, white, man's soul is born with? Brooks, no touch. Therefore, the sensitivest spot of all, Wounded by any wafture, breathed from black, Is, honour within honour, Like the eye centred i the ball, The honour of our wife. Touch us, are the pupil of our honour, then, Not actually, since so you slay outright, but by a gesture simulating touch. Presumable mere menace of such taint, this were our warrant for eruptive ire, to whose dominion I impose no end. Having laid down the abstract principle, De proceeds to illustrate its truth. He quotes a passage from Theodoric, refers to the chaste bees, and tells an interesting story of an elephant Which had rebuked the dishonour done to his master by trampling the guilty wife and her paramour to death. Then, mounting from beast to man, he cites the Athenian code and Roman laws of different periods, such as those of Romulus, Julian, Cornelius, and Gracchus, and endeavours to show how, even before the perfect revelation had been made, these had proclaimed the right of the injured husband, avenge his threatened honor by the shedding of blood. Grace emphasized what nature had revealed. All that was long ago declared as law by the natural revelation, stands confirmed by apostle and evangelist and saint, to wit, that honor is man's supreme good. To the proof and elucidation of this, he brings forward passages from St. Jerome, St. Gregory, St. Bernard, and Solomon. He finds in Samson an antitype of Guido, who, he says, bore all evils, jives, stripes, and daily labor at the mill, but drew the temple down and killed his foes when his sense of honor was stirred by being brought out as an object of sport. Even in the words of our Lord himself, he claims to find a proof of the justice of his plea and a reason for the acquittal of Guido, because, he said, My honour I give to no man. If a man must defend his honour, and the old law that punished the adulterous wife with stoning has been abolished, primitive revenge must take its place. It is now a man's duty to use his natural privilege. And this, not only nature, but the social sentiment demands. It is not a cause which must wait the decision of a court. It demands prompt and immediate action. Courts were not intended to punish such offences or to determine, in such matters, the measure of innocence or guilt. The husband must defend his own honour. But, if this be so, why does the court find it necessary to condemn Guido at all? Simply because it was improperly done. A good thing done unhandsomely ill in proof of this de archangelis cites of sicily's decisions 61st then the learned lawyer seeks to explain why guido killed three instead of one and refers to cases in ancient history which whether they justify guido or not show that his lawyer was a man of great erudition now the question presses why did guido procrastinate his revenge Why did he do in cold blood that which he failed to do when his blood was hot? To argue in this way, Diocangelis claims, shows ignorance of the way in which honour bears a wound. This time makes it harder to bear. Longer the sufferance, stronger grows the pain. Murder ought to be avenged at once, but this is more like the punishment of a theft which one can inflict whenever and wherever he finds the thing stolen. In the hands of the thief. But Guido had waited a week after he arrived in Rome on his mission of revenge. It may be urged. To this, De replies, with an outburst of apparently religious indignation. Is no religion left? No care for aught held holy by the church? What? Would you have us skip and miss those feasts of the natal time? Must we go prosecute secular business? On a sacred day six aggravations of the crime urged by the prosecution are all adroitly explained away and treated as of no consequence because no crime being committed there can be no aggravation of it fisk how often must i round thee in the ears all means are lawful to a lawful end concede he had the right to kill his wife the count indulged in a travesty why De illa ut vindictam sumeret that on her he might lawful vengeance take commodius with more ease et tutius and safelier De archangelus then justifies guido for hiring others to help him commit the killing they could not understand reasons of honour we must he contends translate our motives like our speech into the lower phrase that suits the sense of the limitedly apprehensive. With this he ends the defence of Guido, and denotes a few contemptuous, plausible passages to the defence of his hirelings. It is true, he says, that they afterwards intended to kill Guido for merely neglecting to pay them, but that, again, showed his cultivated mind. He would not desecrate the deed, nor vulgarise justice by defraying its cost. By money dug out of the dirty earth. What, though he lured base hinds by Lucas Hope, the only motive they could masticate milk for babes, not strong meat which men require? The deed done, those coarse hands were soiled enough, he spared them the pollution of the pay. The lawyers, in the ring and the book, had nothing to our knowledge of the tragedy which they have been called upon to consider. Their whole endeavour is to make speeches which will produce an effect upon the judges and which, above all, will add to their own reputation for learning and special pleading. There is not a trace of insight in all they say. Their formulas of law obscure their vision of reality. But little as they tell us of the facts of the case, they tell us much of themselves. In and through their pleadings, and in and through the processes of their minds, as they prepare them, we learn what manner of men they are. They unconsciously reveal the secrets of their own hearts. We see Diacangelus in his study, preparing his argument in defense of Guido. We hear him speak, and we know at once that he is a fond father, and that love for his boy and desire for his welfare are motives that animate his efforts. Evidently, He has very little interest in his case, and his mind works upon it mechanically. But the thought of what he may do for his boy frees him, for a time, from the seductions of sluggishness and appetite. This speech will help his boy in his future career, and for that he will work with all the might that is in him. We will beat you, my Botinius, all for love, all for our tribute to Chinotto's day. The supper he is to give on this, his son's birthday, will, he hopes, win the favour of the grandfather, and he plans how he may gain bequests for the boy from the other relatives. He is a man of domestic temper, who loves the enjoyments of home, and these have power to console him for the loss of the office which Portinius, his rival, had gained. Well let others climb the heights of the court, the camp. How vain are chambering and wantonness, revel and rout, and pleasures that make mad. Commend me to home joy, the family board, altar, and hearth, these, with a brisk career, a source of honest profit and good fame, just so much work as keeps the brain from rust, just so much play as lets the heart expand, honouring God and serving man. I say, These are reality, and all else, fluff, nutshell and nought, thank Flaccus for the phrase. Suppose I had been Fisk, yet bachelor. He is very fond of a good meal, and the expectation of the birthday feast in the evening, again and again, interrupts the construction of his plea. Supper and argument, indignation, and questions of cookery, mingle in surprising... And delightful confusion. He is seeking to mitigate one of the aggravations of his client's offence, and here is the course his mind takes. Yes, hear the eruptive wrath with full effect. How, did not indignation chain my tongue, could I repel this last, worst charge of all? There is a porcupine to barbecue. Gigio can jug a rabbit well enough with sour-sweet sauce and pine-pips. But, good Lord, suppose the devil instigate the wench to stew, not roast him. Stew, my porcupine? If she does, I know where his quills shall stick. Come, I must go myself and see to things. I cannot stay much longer stewing here. Our stomach, I mean our soul, is stirred within, and we want words. It is easy enough to see that, To Hyacinthus de Archangelus, the soul is a rhetorical phrase, while the stomach is a substantial fact. It is evident, too, that he is shrewd, his eyes always wide open to any chance. The Pope may remember the speech he is making, which will help him to decide the case of Guido, and Rome is full of people now to edify and to give one name and fame. Hyacinthus has sympathy. His own discomfort reminds him of the discomfort of others. As he writes, his fingers grow cold, and so he thinks. Guido must be all goose-flesh in his hole, despite the prison straw. Bad carnival for captives. No sliced fry for him, poor count. I am not aware that he is peculiar in this, for, after all, most of us are sympathetic only when we happen to think of it. His view of Providence is somewhat like his sympathy. The horror of the case does not impress him. Providence has allowed the murder to take place just to help him on. Here he is anxious to succeed and to give his boy a good start in life. Now, how good God is! How falls plumb to point this murder, gives me Guido to defend now of all days of the year just when the boy verges on Virgil. The fact is, there's a blessing on the hearth, a special providence for fatherhood. In this, he is neither better nor worse than those who imagine that the universe was constructed for their special advantage, and that whatever happens is good, because it enables them to make a few more dollars or win a higher place in some social set. It is plain that the Archangelus has only a professional interest in Guido. He is far more sorry later that he loses his case than that Guido should lose his head, and he tries to make up the disappointment to his boy by getting him the pleasure of witnessing the execution. Intellectually, he impresses us as a man of prosaic mind, one who worked slowly and who beat out his speeches by patient toil. He is not carried along by a train of consecutive thought, and chance words very often suggest the cause of his reasoning. He mentions a flea, and then says, Talking of which flea reminds me I must put in special word for the poor humble following, the four friends, Sicarii, our assassins caught and caged. On the whole, Hyacinthus reveals himself to us as a dull man, inclined to be lazy, whom the love of his home spurred into activity. He is fond of good dinners, and his sympathies and views are somewhat contracted. He has his little spites and prejudices, but, on the whole, he means well, and, in this particular case, does the best he can for a sorry client. End of chapter 9